This is Audiblegate. An alliance of authors, narrators, and publishers to win justice against Audible. For years, this Amazon subsidiary, the world's largest audiobook retailer, has been ripping off audiobook creators. Finding all kinds of inventive ways not to pay us. And devastating culture as it goes. But not anymore. We're here to put a stop to Audible's fraud. And invite you to join us at audiblegate.com. Frankly, maybe because I was an author, I think that when a right is created, um, it's supposed to be exploited. And when you invest it with someone else, it's almost a moral imperative to turn that into what it's supposed to be. Studios uh, have 150 people in what they call the business affairs departments in the film industry, and all they do is sell the rights aggressively. They sell the Lithuanian rights if they can. And I'm not so sure that's not something missing from the publishing formula. In fact, from my 37-year perspective, 20 as a writer, it's something that's not done as aggressively and by fewer people than it used to be in the past. So one of my recommendations is to step that up. Whether a new author, narrator, or a seasoned veteran of the game, it's vital for your success to look out for yourself. Large corporations, such as Amazon, the parent company of Audible, may not always have your best interests at heart. As you just heard from Don Katz, the founder of Audible, it's a moral imperative to exploit rights. How can an author-narrator protect him or herself and advance their own interests, legally and profitably? In this podcast, we speak with Catherine Goldman, Editor-in-Chief at the Creative Law Center, to find out more about the possible risks and rewards of publishing from a legal perspective. Thank you so much again for your time today, Catherine. Sure, you're welcome. You're quite welcome. Tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into your current profession? And you can start that from wherever, however you want to. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. You know, how did I get into my current profession? So I'm a lawyer. I am an intellectual property and internet law attorney. And I got into the law a lot of years ago. (laughs) So 35 years ago. And so when I got into the law, I got out of college with a degree in art history. And there was just not a whole lot I could do with that degree. So I went to law school. That's how I got into the law. But how I got into my current practice is I spent 30 years as a litigator, and I was litigating uh, copyright and trademark cases in federal court. Copyright and trademark are federal laws, so they're the same across all the states for the most part. And litigation is difficult, and I wanted to transition my practice away from always fighting And what I wanted to do was I wanted to start helping creative professionals, writers, artists, uh, photographers, and uh, creative entrepreneurs. I wanted to help them protect their creative work and protect themselves so that they could build solid businesses on their creative work. I essentially wanted to keep 
my clients out of the courtroom. And I've always liked, enjoyed working with creative people. And so I decided that I was going to shift my practice and start helping creatives build their businesses and protect their creative work. And so that's when I established the Creative Law Center, which is, you can find me at creativelawcenter.com. And so what I do is, there are two parts to my work right now. And the first is straight legal services. So I help people with contracts. I help them with business strategies. I help them with get trademarks for their businesses, get copyrights for their creative work. So that's straight legal services. And then I also offer a membership program for creatives to join so that I can teach them how to help themselves, how to be the guardians of their own creations. And what it does is it makes access to legal services more affordable. And so that's at the Creative Law Center. So that's essentially how I got into what I'm doing now, which is working directly with creatives and trying to keep them out of court and helping them build their businesses. So you work with a wide assortment of of creatives. You mentioned uh, artists, and that would include painters, I'm presuming, photographers, musicians, authors, and narrators as well. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. And also you can broaden that like to uh, creative entrepreneurs, people who sell their product. For instance, I represent a tile company, all right, very creative tile company. And they, I help them with their business contracts. I help them with their online presence. I help them with their strategies. I represent a lot of coaches. I represent a lot of people who have developed systems to help other people, right? And so they have they have manuals and they have online courses and people who create not just a physical piece of art, it's not just a book, but people create things. Really, it's limitless what you can create and I help them protect it so they can monetize it. So stores, online businesses, coaches and artists and writers and narrators as as well. So it's really very broad based. The people will probably be uh, visiting your website after this podcast just to find out more about those services, because I think there's a lot of people out there. From my perspective, I'm thinking about entrepreneurs, because a lot of writers and narrators, such as myself, for example, became I started a small business after I started doing writing and narrating because it just made more sense. And uh, there's a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of unknowns getting into it. A lot of hurdles to jump over. And maybe sometimes people like me wouldn't recognize potential legal issues that they may be getting into without knowing it. Right. And so think about it for a minute. You start by writing a book. Okay, now you're a writer. But in order to generate revenue from the book, think of all the different aspects. Okay, first of all, you have to produce the files that get uploaded, let's say, to Amazon. So you're a writer, but you're not a book cover designer. So you hire a book cover designer. Okay, so one of the things that I explain at the Creative Law Center is what the relationship is between an author and a book cover designer. 
And who owns the creative work on the book cover? What if you want to incorporate on the book cover a photograph that was taken by someone else? Can you buy that photograph and use it? Do you license it? Or what are the terms of the license? All of a sudden, you're entering into contracts. You're a writer, and now you're building a business. And you're hiring somebody to design the book cover. You are licensing art for the book cover. And then you move into audiobooks, and you are hiring narrators. Okay, so there's a contract there. Little by little, all of these pieces come together to form a business. And then you write the second book. And then you write the third book. And then you, you know, it depends on where you're going with these books, right? Let's say your book does well and somebody approaches you to option it for a movie or for a television series. Now you're licensing some of your rights to a producer or to a production company. And these are all facets of a business. And so it happens organically, but you have to think about how those pieces work together and what rights you're giving away and what rights you are maintaining control over. And so these are all topics that I cover in blog posts and workshops at the Creative Law Center. Can you think of any common errors that you see a lot of uh, new authors, narrators, or any any artist or entrepreneur? Are there common themes of issues that you can think of that you've encountered when working with people? Yes, I think the thing that, that comes to mind is that once you've created something, you have created a series of intellectual property rights. And what comes to mind is that authors and artists and creative entrepreneurs are too quick to give up their rights too easily. So an an author who is approached by a publishing company and they're offered a publishing deal and it's their first publishing deal, it's their first book, and they're so excited that they are willing to give up some of their rights, if not all of their rights, without really thinking about, is this a good idea? Should I be holding on to these rights? For example, an author is approached by a publishing company. They want to publish the novel. And in the grant of rights to the publishing company, there is a provision that says the publishing company also gets the performance rights. And the performance rights are part of that bundle of rights that make up copyright. And so now the publishing company is in control of the performance rights for this novel. Well, is it appropriate for a publishing company to control whether the book should be made into a movie? Is that an appropriate place for those rights? Or should the author hold on to those performance rights? Motion picture, TV, radio, podcast. Should the author hold on to those rights and just give publishing rights to the publishing company? Print, ebook, audio. Just give them what they're good at doing. Don't give up more rights than you have to. And in order to make that decision, a creative entrepreneur needs to understand what the rights are that they have 
so that they can control and manage them. And so what I find is very common is that creative entrepreneurs who have a new set of rights are too eager to give them up easily. And sometimes the best deal that you can make is to not make the deal. And that is something that I believe writers and creatives need to understand and overcome their initial enthusiasm. Seems like it would be difficult for a new author or, or artist or entrepreneur to, to go against that urge that they have somebody interested. Maybe it's a big publishing company or a big company is interested in acquiring a, a new product or something or a publisher wants a book and they're well-known, they're popular, they have a lot of great distribution outlets. And so somebody sees that or they recognize that and they and they want to jump in, it would be difficult for them to resist that temptation. It, yes, it is difficult to resist the temptation. And it's also very difficult to summon the courage to go back and negotiate on certain points. So the kind of points that you want to push back on are those performance rights. You want to retain those performance rights. I mean, if you think about what authors have to do to market their work, even if they're you know traditionally published, authors are still responsible for marketing their own work. So how do you do that? Well, some authors do podcasts. Well, if you've given up performance rights, have you given up the right to produce your own podcast based on your work? So you have to think about that. Another provision that you can find in a publishing contract that you should think carefully about is whether you're going to give up your right to negotiate the sequel. Are you going to give up the sequel rights? Are you going to agree not to create a competitive work? Now, this is more for nonfiction than fiction, but if you write a book um, based on your life's profession and the publisher says, okay, we'll publish this for you, but you have to promise not to write anything that's competitive with it. Well, now you're being turned into a one-trick pony and you can only have this one book about your life's work. So these are the things that you have to consider when it comes to managing your intellectual property rights. And so it's that enthusiasm for a first-time publishing deal or a first-time motion picture deal that you have to rein in and you have to consider negotiating. And the risk is that the offer will get withdrawn. So there's a balance there. Do you, you provide the professional legal consultation if somebody was uh, approached by a publishing company and they were facing that issue, could they contact you and say, I would like you to represent me in this uh, negotiation? Yes. So that's what I do. That makes up a large part of my work. And I will take a look at the contract and I will go through the contract line by line in detail. And my first job is to make sure that my client understands what's in the contract. Some of these publishing contracts are, you know, 18, 20, 25 pages long, single spaced, very dense language that is impenetrable to many people. So job number one is to make sure my client understands what's in the contract. The next thing we want to do is we want to talk about, okay, what are your plans for this book? 
what, how do you want to build your business on this book? And if you want to do a YouTube channel or a podcast or live readings, you want to make sure, or streamed readings, you want to make sure that you're reserving sufficient rights and that you're not going to do something that's going to conflict with the terms of the publishing contract once it's signed. So first, understand the contract. Second, where does this book fit in your business plans so that that you're not signing anything that's going to conflict with those plans? And then third, it's negotiate with the publisher. And I have done that for my clients, but many of my clients are then empowered to discuss the terms themselves. They go through an agent or they talk directly to the editor to say, all right, these are my concerns because this is where I'm going with my business. How can you accommodate this? How can we come to a resolution so that you're happy and I'm happy and the author is happy and the publisher is happy? Taking into consideration the business needs of each party. And that's the third piece, ultimately resolution and signature. And then everybody has their rights. The publisher has been granted rights to go off and publish and the author has retained sufficient rights to build their business. So yeah, that's a, that is a large part of what I do. When somebody approaches you, you mentioned uh, getting an agent. Do you work with agents or do you ever recommend uh, like a, do you have a list, a short list of agents that you recommend to people or is that something that you get into? No, I don't recommend agents. I review agent contracts So the writer comes to me and says, I've been approached by this agent. Will you review my contract? And I will do that similar to the publishing contract, but it's a much smaller contract. Agents contracts are four or five pages, usually not much longer than that. So I don't recommend agents. I get to know agents and work with them because then when the agents bring the publishing contract to the author, And I review the contract and the agent has the industry knowledge and also knows the publisher because that's what, you know, that's what agents do. So then I work with an agent to get the best deal terms for the author, for our mutual client. So have you ever encountered a situation where somebody had an agent and they wanted you to review the contract and you got a a vibe about it, that it wasn't the way to go. Have you had those kinds of situations or is it not common? It's happened. Okay. So when I get a contract, whether it's a publishing contract or an agent's contract, I do my own research into that person to see whether this is an appropriate fit so that I can talk to my client about, you know, is this, is this a good fit for you? Does this agent, has this agent represented similar work as yours. So I do that. I will look at the contract and I'll tell them what is consistent with the industry practice and what should be changed. Some industry practice is not good practice for the author. If I recommend a change or I make my client aware of a provision in the contract that is not to their benefit and the agent doesn't want to change it, then, you know, there's a parting of the ways, but at least 
my client understands that there was a right they didn't want to give up, that they wanted to control, that they wanted to, to hold on to. And so that is a situation where that agent may not make any changes to the contract. Now, I've had writers who have said, I'm going to sign it anyway. All right, go for it. You know what you're getting into. You're fully appraised and you understand you're not going in blindly. So how are you generally compensated for your professional services when you're interacting with uh, authors, narrators, entrepreneurs, so on and so forth? Is it usually the same kind of compensation or do you have different types of ways that you're compensated? I take a look at each project that is brought to me and I try to fix a flat price on what it will take. So if someone came to me with an agent's contract that was five pages or fewer, right now I charge $1,000 to review that contract, to make comments on that contract, to suggest uh, suggested language if I think something should be changed. I meet with the author. We do a Zoom call, a video call that the author can record. And we go through the contract line by line. We go through my comments. We go through any questions that the author has. And then we submit the proposed changes to the agent. The agent looks at it and says what she will or will not do. And it comes back to me for a final review. We go through it again. I go through it again with the client. And then, you know, usually everything gets resolved. People want to work together generally. And people want the relationship to be good and to be positive. And so once you explain why you want to proceed in a certain way, you're generally going to be met with, oh, okay, that makes sense. Let's change that. And then, you know, the contract gets signed and off they go to find a publisher. Other than that, you know, if I can't put a price on it, then I charge by the hour like most attorneys. But the membership that I have at the Creative Law Center is a membership in which as the members pay monthly, those monthly membership fees accrue towards legal services. So it's like a Christmas club. And every month that you're a member of the Creative Law Center, you're accruing money for legal services so that when you get that contract, you've already saved up the money to have me review it and go through that process with you. And this membership, is it a flat rate or are there different levels of membership? What is the, how is the uh, fee structure for that membership? The membership is essentially $67 a month. And you have to buy uh, the first three months. You have to join for the first three months. And that's $197. And then it's $67 a month after that. And so, no, there's only one level of membership. And once you join, you have access to all of the materials, the full library of resources, including form contracts, customizable, downloadable Word doc contracts, one of which is an audiobook narration and production services contract, by the way. So as you are well aware, there are a number of different arrangements for hiring narrators. And the contract that's in the Creative Law Center membership right now 
is a per finished hour contract. It's not a royalty-based contract. Have you ever worked with uh, anyone who wanted you to set up a royalty-based contract? I have been asked to think about that, yes. I am a legal advisor for the Alliance of Independent Authors. And uh, one of the reasons that I became aware of you know, Audiblegate is because of the Alliance of Independent Authors. And they asked me to work with them on an audiobook, a narration and production services contract that is royalty-based. I'm still thinking about what that should look like, still thinking about what is fair in the industry these days. And if there are listeners to this podcast who have suggestions for me about how to structure a fair royalty-based narration contract, I would appreciate you reaching out to me at katherine at creativelawcenter.com so that I can get an idea of what people in the industry are doing so that I can craft a royalty-based contract that makes sense so that I can deliver it up to uh, the Alliance of Independent Authors. And could you give me that email one more time? Sure. Catherine, which is K-A-T-H-R-Y-N at creativelawcenter.com. Can you tell me what do you find most challenging about the work that you do now? The most challenging thing for me right now is finding time to do my own writing. I like to write blog posts and emails to my audience about what's going on in with the creative rights, with uh, the development of creative businesses. And it is very difficult for me to find the time to do that writing because it involves a lot of research also. And so, and that's the part I love the most. I love writing and I love teaching and explaining things to creatives so that they can get an idea about what would be best for their business. So the most challenging thing for me right now is finding the time to do that writing. And on and my Creative Law Center is also a blog. So blog posts. So that's all free available information. One thing that has been suggested to me by a number of folks over the years is to take contracts and annotate them so that people can understand, all right, what does this provision mean? What does this provision mean? And I took a short step in that direction recently by posting a glossary on the blog of contract terms. And it's fully searchable. So, you know, when people get their contracts and they see a term in there and they don't understand it, this breaks down all of those basic terms and explains them. So I did do that glossary, which is kind of a half step in the direction of annotating contracts. Earlier, you mentioned the Alliance of Independent Authors and work you do with them. And you also, I think you alluded to that was your first interaction with Audiblegate. Could you talk a little bit about that interaction and how you first became aware of Audiblegate? What was your experience with that? 
Sure. And so the Alliance of Independent Authors asked me to work with them on developing an audiobook narration and production services contract. It was around the time, or it was, you know, about a year after Audiblegate really came to the fore. And it was about trying to put together a contract that treated narrators and authors fairly. And I think that, you know, that's what Ally is all about, is like being fair and empowering independent creatives to understand their rights and build their businesses. And so I think they wanted to make available a fair contract. And so that's when I found out what was going on with Audible. I have to tell you, though, it doesn't surprise me what they've done and the way they have treated their user base, their consumers, and their content providers. It doesn't surprise me. They own the platform. They write the rules. When you sign up for a contract, uh, an account with them, you know, you have you have no say in how they're going to run their business. So it just doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that Audible is behaving the way it's behaving. But what surprises me is that narrators and authors are going exclusive with Audible. That surprises me. That point that you just brought up, it seems like from my experiences in the in the Facebook pages, chat groups and all that, not only have they gone exclusive, but there are authors and narrators who are very defensive and almost go on the attack in defense of Audible and, and ACX. I've, I've seen some of that going on. Have you experienced any of that or have you been aware of any of that happening? I have been, I have been aware of that. And so I, I don't understand that perspective either. If being exclusive with Audible is making you happy and you are contented with it, well, then that's fine. You know, as they say, you do you, right? If that's your business model, and you're doing well, fine. Other people, it's not working out for them. And they actually do much, much better going wide. I don't understand the conflict. I don't understand why you would even waste the energy to defend Audible. I do understand why you would spend energy explaining to your peers and other creatives how to go wide, how it has worked for you. You know, your mileage may differ, but this is this is how it has worked for, you know, one author says, going wide has worked for me. I've done this and this and this and this, and I have been successful over the years. And I am more successful than had I stayed exclusive with Audible because I've done the math and I can tell that the percentage increase that I would get by being exclusive with Audible isn't going to cover what I'm making up by going wide, which, you know, puts me into libraries and puts me onto other platforms. So I don't understand why there's a fight. Being exclusive makes you happy. Go for it. If you want to learn how to go wide, um, go for it. I just don't understand the fight. So thinking about Audible and the exclusive and disparities. Can you touch on maybe one or two major things that you think are disparities or unfair practices that Audible uses in their contracts or in their marketing plan that you're aware of 
Well, I wouldn't want to say unfair practices because again, it's their platform. It's their contract. You signed the deal when you signed up for an account. So it's not unfair because it's it's right there. I'm not that familiar with their royalty reporting, you know, and I understand that some of that has been clarified. If they have been misreporting the numbers, then that's a problem. If they are being selective in the kind of data they're sharing with their users, it's their arena, it's their ball, it's they are the referees, you know, they own the the whole game. So it's very hard to address that unless they are breaking their contract, they agree to with you, unless they are defrauding you and not revealing information that would allow you to uncover that fraud. So it's hard for me to speak to that piece of it. But just as a business matter, you know, if I understand correctly, you know, ACX doesn't let you set your own pricing. Boom. Okay. Well, that's just a, that's just a business constraint. Do you want to live with that? If you do, that's fine. If you don't go wide, the royalty rates, you know, they aren't, if, if you've gone wide, you lose a percentage of the royalty. That's just a business constraint. That's your decision to do that. You are, if you are exclusive with ACX, you can't get into libraries. Now, I, that's my understanding. I don't know if that's still current. And if you're in libraries, that's great exposure. And you do get paid if your audiobook is in, in the library. So that's a benefit to authors because they can say to their audience, you know, go to the library and get the audiobook. You don't have to pay for it. And, they, you know, in some audience members may say, or some of your readers may say, oh, no, no, I want to pay you. And you can assure them that you do get paid if they download the book from the library. So those are just examples of the the differences as I understand it. Again, I am only, I only learn these things by working with my clients. I don't have personal experience with it. Join us next week for part two of our interview with Catherine Goldman, where We will be discussing Spotify acquiring find-away voices, the metaverse, and a few other things indie authors and narrators should know. Thanks to Tantrika Sound for providing the audio quotes used in the podcast, and also to Orquesta Tipica Fernandez Fierro for the music. This is Audiblegate.